Epiphany Fellowship's podcast, where our goal is to see people everywhere show off the glory of Christ in every area of life. We pray that you are blessed and encouraged by today's message and will allow the Word of God to dwell in you richly. How many of you know that's all we need to do? See the see see the Lord, the King, the King of Glory. He's he's searching the earth, looking for those who were willing to call upon His name. His Spirit is wandering the earth, looking for those who are seeking His face. See, you you want to know. One of the great things about this idea of God standing forever, the foreverness of God, is that the same God that has kept you will continue to keep you. Because if you look back over this last year, listen, I, I don't know if y'all, some of y'all like me, but there were some bills that got paid that shouldn't have got paid. There, there was some sickness that got healed that shouldn't have got healed. There, there were some wombs that were closed that he opened. There were some relationships that you thought were dead and gone and he resurrected. And all he wants you to do is seek his face. Call his name. And so I, I want this to be more than just the singing of words for us. I want you to commit in your soul, to resolve in your heart that you're not going to stop. The trials won't stop you. That people won't stop you. That uh, obstacles won't stop you. That no matter what comes your way, you won't stop. Seeking his face. You won't stop calling his name because even if he doesn't do anything else if he doesn't do for you in 23 what he did in 22 guess what he's still worthy if those prayers that he answered in 22 don't get answered in 23 guess what he's still good so I want us to have that that disposition in our souls that I'm not gonna stop. Come hell or high water, I'm not gonna stop. I'm gonna keep seeking you. I'm gonna find, he says, he says, wisdom is stored up for those who seek the Lord. You know, you know why? You know why? Because God has booby-trapped this life so that every good thing is found. Where? With him. That's why the psalmist writes, in his presence is the fullness of joy and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore every good thing that you could ever want is already with God so why not seek him why not call him 
And so I, I'm talking to myself as I'm talking to you. Because I know that I have not sought him perfectly. And he's still been faithful. That all of my failures in the face of an almighty God still have not caused him to abandon me. And, and listen, I don't say, I, it's not about me or you. It's because of his good purposes. It's only because of his good pleasure that he decides to lavish his love on us. And so it's, it's from that place that we sing we're not going to stop calling his name and seeking his face because he's good. And so I, I want us to take that into the new year. If you don't take anything else with you into this new year, I want you to take with you the reality that your God is good. And he just wants you to call his name and seek his face to taste and see that he is good and that he won't leave you or forsake you listen I, I gotta I gotta preach I gotta preach I, I gotta I gotta get in this word we can stand here and do this all day but I'm, I'm gonna go ahead and preach this text amen I'm glad y'all already standed so why don't y'all join me in in Luke chapter 2 Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 25, we're going to finish up our Advent series this morning. I know it's after Christmas, but we're going to finish our Advent series to open the new year. Amen. Luke chapter 2, verse 25. If you're there, say amen. If you need some time, it's on the screen. I'm going to read the odds. You're going to read the evens. What are we going to do in the last verse? See, y'all learning. Y'all learning. Amen. Here's, here's the word of the Lord. There was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation. And the Holy Spirit was on him. Guided by the Spirit, he entered the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to perform for him what was customary under the law, Now, Master, you can dismiss your servant in peace as you promised. Oh, that was short. Uh, you have prepared it in the presence of all peoples. Now his father and mother were amazed at what was being said about him. Altogether. And a sword will pierce your own soul that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. 
I just want to tag our text for this morning, a long-awaited encounter. A long-awaited encounter. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that we get the privilege and opportunity to stand before your presence. Thank you, O God, for the access that has been given to us through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. For without him, there would not be peace between us. It was a peace that you initiated by sending your son to earth so that he might become man and do what only man could do and only God could do at the cross of Calvary. And so we thank you, O Lord, for your deep love for us. A love that is so deep that it passes our understanding. Who can know the love, the depths of love that you have for us through your son? But nonetheless, God, we say thank you. May we glorify you in everything that we do, oh God, we pray. May this word be received with fertile ears that we might not just be hearers but also doers of it this we pray in the matchless name of your son the Lord Jesus Christ amen amen you may be seated a long awaited encounter now I've, I've shared this in the past before but growing up I was probably the biggest wrestling fan there was and, and I'm not talking about the fake wrestling you see in the Olympics I'm talking about the real wrestling WWF in the ring I don't see BJ out here, but BJ, no offense, don't come to me after the service. BJ, he, he a strong, yoked up dude. Um, but I, man, I used, to, I used to love wrestling. And today, you know, if you, uh, you know, I don't watch it as much today, but if you watch it today, it comes on pretty much every night. But back in the day, you know, like, there were like, like there was one wrestling show. It was Saturday night main event. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. And outside of that once a week wrestling event, there were maybe like four pay-per-views that you had to spend money to watch and see. $29.95. You know, that, that's cheap by today's standards. You know, my parents ain't want to pay it, but it's cheap by today's standard. But, but there were like four main events you could watch. And, and out of the four, there was, there was one in particular that was my favorite. And it would always happen around this time of year. It was called the Royal Rumble. Yeah, yeah, y'all know what I'm talking about. Y'all know what I'm talking about. See, the Royal Rumble was not like a regular match. In a regular match, you had to pin your opponent to a three count, one, two, three, or you had, to, you had to get them to tap out in a submission hole. But the Royal Rumble was not just two people. It wasn't a tag team, four people. It was 30 people. It was pure chaos. And I loved every moment of it. And the, the only way for you to get eliminated was you had to be thrown over the top rope. And you had to be thrown over the top road, and once your feet hit the floor, you were out. And so the only way for you to win was to outlast 29 other competitors by not being thrown over the top rope and being the last one standing in the ring. Now, one of the things about this was if you were the first person out, 
you were at a disadvantage because every 60 seconds, a new wrestler would come out. They didn't just throw everybody in there at the same time to start the match. They started off with two people and then every 60 seconds they would introduce a new wrestler. Somebody else would come from behind the scenes. And so if you, can, if you went out first, man, you was in for a long night. <laughs> but if you came out last, you know, you was at a little bit of advantage. You was fresher, everybody else had been in there. They was tired. But every once in a while, as a little kid, I would watch some of my favorite wrestlers get trapped in the ring with a bunch of bad guys. And that was always the worst thing that could happen at the Royal Rumble because for some reason, the bad guys always teamed up and would beat up the good guys and I would be sitting there just anxious. Like, is anybody going to come help him? Is, 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 there, is anybody? And so I'd be watching the clock tick down. 30, 29. 18. And, and the issue was they never let you know who was coming out next. And so you never had any idea whether the next person coming to the ring was coming to the aid of the person that needed help or whether or not it was another adversary. And so as the clock counted down, my anticipation would grow because I was always unsure of whether the guy I was rooting for would get any help, whether or not the one who was coming next would be, as Jay-Z said, friend or foe. If I could put it this way, when Jesus stepped down off of his throne of glory and wrapped himself in the weakness and decay, he came to a world he created on a mission to bring the help that was so desperately needed. He came to make salvation available and the question I would ask myself is who in their right mind would reject the opportunity to be saved and yet as we wake our way through this text we see that not everyone would welcome his coming let's bring my, my, my first point and then, then I'm out your way uh, and I mean that this morning I know black black preachers say that all the time and then we preach for an hour, but I promise you, I'm not going to preach long this morning. My, my, my only point, the result of Jesus' coming would not be the same for everyone. Look, look with me at the text. Verse 25 says, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to Israel's consolation, and the Holy Spirit was on him. Now, now Simeon in this passage and Anna in the following passage that, that we're not going to deal with, but just so you know, by way of context, Simeon and Anna represent or personify the best of expectant and faithful Israel. Yeah. Me meaning that there, were a, there, there was a group of people within Israel who centered their life on what God was going to do with them in the future. Meaning that they were highly aware that God had a plan of redemption for Israel and they, they centered their life and activity on awaiting what God had planned to do and how he would change and restore Israel's fortunes. And so when we see Simeon and Anna, they are sort of like the best representatives we have in Israel of what it looked like to await the coming of God and his Messiah to change Israel's fortunes. And the, the thing that, that, that I love about this is it signifies 
that Jesus was already central in terms of God's redemptive, in their mind, in terms of God's redemptive plan. They knew that there was a Messiah coming. Israel knew a Messiah was coming because God had told them. And so there were those who were actively, consciously aware and waiting for his coming. Meaning that they didn't just read God's word and then live life in a way that was detached from it. But they allowed what they read about God's word, what they heard from him to inform what they could anticipate in the future and what they could anticipate in the future changed how they lived. And so 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 for Simeon, uh, we, we even see this because of how the Bible describes his pious life, that he was righteous and devout. Uh, it, 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 it almost seems as if Luke here is trying to let us know that of all the testimonies that could be said about Jesus in his life, if you were going to have a witness testify about their encounter with Jesus, it would be someone like Simeon because he was righteous and he was devout and the Holy Spirit was on him. Can, can you imagine it, that, that like what, what it, when the Bible says that the Holy Spirit rested on him? What, what, like, what, what that means about the type of character that you have, like how you are perceived. Like, you, you, know, you know, it's like, you know, when somebody come up to you, you're like, man, you, you've been spending time with God. There's, there's just something about how you carry yourself. There's something about how you talk. There's something about how you interact. There's something about the knowledge of your scriptures that, that, that gives it away that you've spent time with, that you have a, a closeness with God that seems a little abnormal. And, and Simeon was, was like this. The Holy Spirit rested on him. Now, uh, Simeon may have been uh, part of a group of people that had close proximity and activity in the temple, meaning that they would spend the majority of their time around the temple teaching and preaching and trying to get other Israelites to both understand and become consciously aware of the fact that God was on the cusp of doing something in the sending of his Messiah. And so they were trying to prepare Israel for this Messiah that was to come. And so we, we see this uh, uh, possibly being an activity of Simeon. Uh, but, but it also says that, that Simeon himself received revelation from God about the imminence of the Messiah's appearance. How do we know that? Uh, because it, it, it says that in verse 26 that it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Messiah. And so, so Simeon, as one who is already looking forward, and this, this idea of looking forward uh, has some eschatological ramifications for it. Because Luke here is letting us know uh, that this looking forward is very theocentric in nature, meaning that God is at the center of this, what it means to be looking forward. Where do we get this from? It comes from the whole second half of Isaiah. If you know anything about how Isaiah is laid out, the book of Isaiah is laid out in, in almost two parts. You have chapters 1 through 39, where he's pretty much trashing Israel for their hypocrisy, for their, uh, for, for their uh, facade of uh, religion, uh, their, 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 uh, their lack of depth in their spirituality. Uh, basically, he's saying, y'all go through all the rules of, re of religiosity, but you really don't know me. I mean, he literally spent like, uh, like 39 chapters 
jamming them up about the fact that y'all show up for church on Sunday, but you're not close to me. You have a devotional plan that you put open on your phone every morning, but you're not close to me. Uh, 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 you, you participate in serving in the church, but you're not close to me. He, he says he spent 39 chapters telling them about how fake and fraud they were as his people. But the second half of the book, from chapters 40 to 66, he get, he still, man, see, I love what God does. Like, God rarely would jam his people up and then not give them hope afterward. Like, like, like God could whoop you and still tell you he love you at the same time. Some, uh, that's, that's a side note. So parents, parents, some of y'all need to institute that. Like, whoop them. And then, and, then, and then tell them, I still love you. You know, you still good with me. We still cool, right? But God, God used to do that with his people. He'd give them a spanking, and then he would tell them, listen, I, I, I'm going to restore the fortunes of Israel. Even though I brought calamity on you, I'm sending someone who's going to drastically change the fortunes of Israel in a way that you would never experience if I did not send someone on your behalf. And, and, and so the, the people in Israel now, they're awaiting this, this servant that God has said would come and do something incredible to save them from their oppressors, to save them and restore their fortunes, to make Israel greater than they were in the past. And so Simeon is one who is expecting and waiting on the, the fulfillment of what God said would happen, that he said he would send a servant to involve himself in the personal affairs of man so that he could redeem his people. But the interesting thing about this is that we can look at this idea of Simeon having the spirit of God on him. We can even look at this idea of Simeon having this special interaction with God where he receives a divine message from God. But what I don't want us to miss is that Simeon was living in a perpetual season of waiting. How do we know this? Well, we, we know this not from what the text says, but from what the text doesn't say. The text doesn't say that God told him how long he would have to wait until the Messiah got there. The, the, the text doesn't tell us how old Simeon was when he got the message or how old he is now. Uh, but the, the implication of the text is that Simeon has been waiting for some time. That, that, that Simeon knew what he was waiting for, but he didn't know how long he'd be waiting for. And yet, by the time we get to verse 28... We see in this text that regardless of how long Simeon had to wait, there's something that defines or characterizes the way in which he waited, and that's joy. Not, not to get ahead of myself, but in verse 28, it says that when, Samuel, when Simeon saw him, he took him up in his arms and praised God. There was an aspect of rejoicing that was taking place because what he had been waiting for for so long finally was before him. And so we can say that Simeon's waiting was characterized by joy. It's, 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 it's 
You know, it's very, you know my, my girls, when they were younger, they, they would always do this thing when they would ask us for something. Daddy, can I have this? Mommy, can I have this? And we would, we would tell them, yes, but not yeah, or hold on. And they would always follow up their inquiries with, um, um, you see how patient I'm being? I'm being patient, right? <laughs> like they would always follow us around and say, you, like, are you proud of me for how patient I'm being? <laughs> you see how manipulative kids are, man? And, and, and we would have to check them, like, if, if you're coming to me after I told you to wait, and you're asking me to acknowledge how patient you're being, you're really asking me how long more do I have to wait? Or can I have it now? And so we, we, would, always, we, would, we would always have this thing where we would tell them the same phrase over and over again. What, what is patience? Patience is waiting with a good attitude. Like patience isn't merely just waiting because you can wait and have a stink attitude. You can wait and have your face all twisted up, body language be all ignorant and, and think just that just because you waited that, that you've done what you were supposed to do. But here in the text and in our lives, God is concerned with not just that we wait, but how we wait. What our temperament is like when we're waiting. How long are you willing to wait with a good attitude? How long do you have to wait until your patience runs out with God? How long do you go waiting until you try to bring about God's desired result on your own? We have to consider that, that what God may be doing is God, God may be leveling up our faith quotient, our faith quotient in our waiting uh, so that as we wait, he grows us in some areas, in some character, in some perseverance, in some endurance. But, but, but listen, think about the implications of what would happen if Simeon not only didn't wait with joy, but didn't wait by faith for the spirit to tell him further instructions. What happens if Simeon gets impatient and then he begins looking at every child that comes into the temple as he waits? What if he, oh, uh, being impatient with God, says, God, I'm tired of waiting on you. Let me just look around and see which child seems like they might be the Messiah. Simeon might end up going off worshiping the wrong child. But Simeon waits with joyful expectation and so as he's waiting God tells him uh, that he'll see the Messiah and he won't see the Messiah he won't die before he sees the Messiah and Simeon takes that and is still obediently waiting by joy and by faith and then we get to verse 27 it says but guided by the spirit he enters the temple and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to perform for him what was customary under the law Simeon took him up in his arms and praised and worshiped God. Uh, no, notice the divine choreography at work here. See, y'all thought Debbie Allen was something. Y'all thought your little TikTok dances be something. But God, God is up to this. Look, it says that the Holy Spirit divinely instructs and guides Simeon into the temple. And then it says that Mary and Joseph take their child into the temple. But why do they take their child into the temple? Why do they happen to be there 
on the same day to be able to run into Simeon at this exact moment. Out of all days that they could have gone to the temple, out of all the days that Simeon could have been guided into the temple, why of all days at all times did they end up bumping into each other at this moment? Well, well, it says that Mary and Joseph were taking Jesus into the temple to do what was customary under the law. What was customary under the law? Jesus needed to be circumcised. Now, what, what does that tell us about how human beings play a role in participating with God's divine instructions? It tells us that even though God is, an, un, is behind the scenes initiating divine movement, it still requires human obedience. Because if Mary and Joseph aren't obedient to the law, then they're nowhere near the temple. If Simeon wants to brush off the advances of the Holy Spirit, he can do that as well. And so it requires the obedience of Simeon, the obedience of Mary and Joseph, in their participation with God as he divinely moves things around to get them to a point where they meet and we have this encounter. And so we, 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 we've got to know, sometimes we sit back expecting God to just divinely orchestrate things in our lives with no assistance from us, with no obedience from us. And, and yet, and yet, not only just in this text, but in text after text, we see, we see the partnering of God and man. We see, we see God orchestrating things and yet still requiring the obedience, the commitment by faith of human beings, of men and women to say, I, I, I'm, I'm not just going to sit back because God's not going to do this without me. God's going to require something of me as I participate with him and bring, bringing about his divine purposes. And so they end up coming here in this encounter. And, and, and I don't want us to, uh, to miss the significance of this encounter happening in the temple. The temple being the place where God's presence would meet with the people. And here we have Jesus meeting with a representative of the people. And, and so don't, don't, don't brush past the fact that this encounter is one that has uh, a, a glorious intent behind it because of how God designated the temple as the place where his presence would dwell. And here we have his presence coming and dwelling in the form of a baby. Now look, look, at, look at Simeon's response to this encounter because after all of this waiting, he finally gets to the place where he encounters this Messiah, this Savior. And, and the text doesn't say how he knew that when he encountered Jesus, that he was the one that, that he had been waiting for. But all we know is that once he encountered Mary, Joseph, and Jesus, he knew. Now, it's, it's clear to me that the Holy Spirit let him know because the Holy Spirit had already been uh, maneuvering him around. The Holy Spirit rested on him, guided him into the temple. And so why would we think that the Holy Spirit wouldn't let him know that's the child? And so, so the, the Holy Spirit lets him know that, that this is the child. And look at his response. He says, now, Master... You can dismiss your servant in peace. And, and, and so even though he was waiting with joy, there, there, was, there, was a, there was something about his waiting where Simeon concluded that he could not leave, he could not die in peace until what God had told him to do was fulfilled. And, and, and so he, he, says, he says, now, master. And for Luke, this emphasizes again 
That salvation has already dawned on humanity with the coming of Jesus because he acknowledges that that now the awaited Messiah who was supposed to come has come. And he's saying, well, since he's come, I can die. And if that's true, then that means that that what God wanted to do with his Messiah in redeeming the world has now been initiated. This new era of kingdom living has now been initiated. This idea of the already but not yet has now been initiated. What God wanted Israel to see has now been initiated. And so Simeon's use of this word master underscores that God is the one whose primary aim drives the narrative from creation to redemption. That God is the one who will overcome the efforts of those who oppose his purposes. And that Simeon is the one who acts in submission to God and through whom God's purpose is realized. See, Simeon understood that he lived in service to the will of his master. That, that, that term master is only used in two places in all of the Bible. And one of them is here. And it's a significant term because it, it implies this idea that Simeon understands that his life is not his own. And Simeon here is, is making it clear verbally by calling God master, by acknowledging that God is his master, that God has full authoritative control over his life. And that Simeon is but a mere servant. That, that all that God wants to do and all that he wants to do with Simeon is not a matter of suggestion that when God gives a command those commands are not coming from a buddy or a friend but a master and so I think I think it's important for us to to even get the gist of that relationship for us so that we can understand even the unique relationship that we have with God that as much as we sing songs like I am a friend of God the text says that he's our friend but the text also says that he's our master and you can't think, you can't relate to your master any old type of way. Listen, listen, I, I know sometimes we don't like our bosses. And even though they have authority over us, you can quit if you want to. Right. But but we got to stop viewing God like we do these earthly relationships. When when God gives a command, it's not optional. We can't choose to redefine terms. So that we can say, well, I'm doing it this way and God has to adjust. This idea of God being master means that he has full authoritative control over not only just what you do, but how we're to think about it. And so for us, we, we can't we can't skip over the, the, the significance of of Simeon calling him master. He says, listen, now that I've seen this Messiah, you can dismiss me. What you've called me to do is over. My life as we know it uh, can be like, I, I can go in peace now. I, you can go ahead and take me. I, I don't want to live to see a hundred. You can go ahead and take me and I, I'm good to go. Uh, he says, for my eyes have seen your salvation or your instrument of salvation. And so Simeon here specifically identifies Jesus as this agent of salvation. Practically equating the arrival of Jesus, the Lord's Messiah, with the advent of this new divine consolation that will take place. The interesting thing about it is when, when we look at Isaiah chapter 40 through 66 and God talks about this consolation 
that's going to come to Israel, this saving work that's going to come to Israel. If you read through the chapters, you'll realize that he's not just talking to Israel. That this salvation, even since long ago, was open to all the nations. And Simeon, being a Jew and being aware of, of this idea that's being talked about in Isaiah and his preaching uh, in, in this moment, he says, for my eyes have seen your salvations. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples. So this salvation can be seen by everybody. They, like what God has been orchestrating throughout the corpus of history can be seen by, every, for, by everybody. And it says a light for revelation to the Gentiles and to the glory of your people, Israel. And so what, what Simeon is saying here is that salvation is not just for the Jews, but is universal in its reach. Now, now that, that would have been a game changer for Israel because in their mind, they were strictly concerned about the type of salvation that God would do specifically for them and removing them from under the thumb of Roman oppression. And they were not concerned about this idea of the gospel message, the sovereign Messiah coming to save not just them, but everybody. But here and throughout scripture, we see that God has made it perfectly clear. This is a, this is a fulfillment of what he ultimately told to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 15, that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through you. What he promised to Eve when he judged her after Adam and Eve sinned, where he said there would be one that would come from the seed of the woman that would crush the head of the serpent. This is the fulfillment of that promise. And so the response as, as Mary and, and Joseph look on at this encounter with Simeon, it, it says that they were amazed at what was being said about him. Now, I, it's, it's interesting that, that Mary and Joseph at this point are still being amazed by what they're experiencing. I mean, they've already both had encounters with angelic beings who told them messages. Mary had an encounter with her cousin where, where, uh, where, where uh, the, the, the baby inside her womb left with joy. Right. They've they've heard the prophecies. They've been visited by shepherds and wise men. And, and after all of these various encounters, the Bible still says that they were amazed at what they were seeing take place in front of them. Now, I could imagine being amazed when 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 you get uh, visited by angelic beings and they tell you that this is going to happen. Listen, they still didn't have all of the details of every uh, every way that this is going to work out. And so for them, every new experience Every new experience for them is something for them to worship God about. But, but notice here that this word amazed is also used of the people who would be in the, in the, uh, who would be in, uh, in the crowds when Jesus would do miracles. Now, what's the significance of this word being used, the same word being used, of, this, of the people who would be in the crowd when Jesus was doing miracles. Because when the Bible would talk about how they were amazed, it wasn't used in a positive sense. It was used in the sense of they were amazed by God, but that amazement did not correspond to faith. And so here, even though uh, Mary and Joseph are amazed, we have to understand that the word amazed here just means amazed. It doesn't mean that because they experienced this and were amazed by it, that it made them believe or think anything differently about God. 
Because you can be amazed by the things of God and it still not produce salvation. You can like being around God's people. You can experience healing. Right. You you can experience just answered prayer. That's like that. The Bible says that the rain falls on the good and the unjust, the just and the unjust. But it says just because just because they were amazed doesn't necessitate faith. Right. But nonetheless, it says that they were made amazed at what was being said. And then Simeon begins to bless them. And he says, indeed, this child is destined to cause the rise and fall of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be imposed. It's interesting that up until this point in time, in the various encounters uh, uh, surrounding the birth narratives, uh, the, the, the only inkling uh, of any type of negative activity that we see being communicated is that Jesus will save his people from his sin. But we don't know how he will save them. It's kind of an open-ended, he will save them, but it's not given us the exact details of how. And, and Simeon seems to be the first place where we see words that Jesus' coming is going to cause a negative response. Because he says, he says, this child is destined to cause the fall and rise of many in Israel. And he will be a sign that will be opposed. Essentially, Simeon has a message for Mary and Joseph that in the coming of their son, in the birth of their son, not everyone will take God's side. Not everyone will be on board with God's purposes. And not only will not everyone be on board with God's purpose, but there will be those who actively oppose Jesus, who is God's salvific instrument, meaning that there are those in the world who will see Jesus, the one who was sent as an instrument to save, and they will reject him as savior and reject God for sending him. The vocabulary is absent here, but the well-known image of God as the stone that causes his own people to stumble it's echoed in Simeon's words. And so Simeon emphasizes the identification of Jesus as being the point of crisis or the stumbling block that would get in the way of people having faith in God. That Jesus is the one who was destined uh, within God's own purpose to reveal the secret thoughts of those who oppose the divine aim. Can you imagine that? That God calls you out of all the nations of the world. He calls you out. And you have this intimate relationship with God. And he communicates how much you need saving and that one day he's going to send a savior. And he's giving you hints so that you can know who the savior is via way of prophecy. And then you have this child who was born that fulfills prophecy and you see him and you reject him. He said, you know, I know that you said you were going to save, but I don't, you ain't going to save that way. Can you imagine trying to dictate to God how, you, how he's going to save you? Like that, 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 that who he sent isn't good enough. 
That's why they just called him a prophet. That's why they just called him a good teacher. That's why they said that his body was stolen from the tomb. That's why they said there was never a resurrection. That's why today they, they said that his, his, his disciples, they saw a hallucination when he, when he was supposedly risen from the dead. The reason is because there are always going to be those who see the salvation of God and reject it because they want a better way. And so here for the first time, we gain sight of an ominous cloud gathering on the horizon. The reality that God's purpose will not be universally supported and that what comes next in this story will be a story of conflict. Because the text doesn't tell us immediately what happens next. And so that at the end of this encounter, all we're left with is Simeon's word that his birth, though it be a, a tool of salvation for the nations, will also be a birth that ultimately brings conflict and division. And so Simeon, in verse 35 here, as we get ready to close, moves from general to specific. Because he's talking about, talking to Mary and, and Joseph about Jesus' life. And then he goes on to say to Mary that the, uh, this conflict that will take place will be a sword that will pierce her very own soul. Now Mary has only heard words of encouragement up until this point. And so to hear a prophet tell you that your son is going to be the source of conflict in Israel and the conflict will have specific and personal consequences for you to the point that it will pierce your soul. How, what do you do with words like that? That you don't know what it means. You don't know that in another 33 years, your son will be pierced in his side and nailed to a cross and you will be an eyewitness to his brutal death you don't know that you see that's the thing about having to hear a word from the Lord and wait is that we have to hear that word sometimes even a difficult word and trust that what he says is true and even if it's a hard word that he's still good and loving let me close this you know, the thing about all of that anticipation and waiting as the clock would strike down watching the Royal Rumble. Once that clock hit zero, you would know immediately whether or not the one who was coming would provide the help that was so desperately needed. And the reason that you would know who was coming is because their theme song would hit. And... As I sat there watching, if it was a friend, the feelings of exuberance and, and joy and relief would be overwhelming as I watched him run to the aid of the one who was in need of saving. Let me put it like this. Shortly after God created his world and placed image bearers to keep watch over it, sin entered the ring. And from then until now, death and the devil have ravaged mankind to the point of death. But Jesus, our Savior, was behind the curtain waiting because it wasn't yet his time to come. There were signs that a Savior was on the way, but we didn't yet know who he was. 
But as we continue to be beaten down by the effects of sin and the advances of the enemy, the clock kept ticking down. And as the clock finally hit zero, we finally heard his theme music. The cries of a newborn baby boy. And if you looked at him with only natural eyes, he wouldn't have looked like much of the savior that you were hoping for. But thanks be to God that in this child, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That in this child was the one who would pay the ransom for our sin. That in this child was the name greater than all other names that would cause all knees to bow. That in this child, heaven would meet earth at the cross of Calvary where he would declare that the saving work he had indeed come to do was finished. One day the savior will come again. And so for us who are engaged in this relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and for those of you who may be here who are not it's important for us to be sure that when he comes you know whether he's coming as a friend or foe father we thank you for your word we thank you that indeed you did come to save and the salvation that you came to offer has been made complete that's why on the cross you could say it is finished to tell us for the work that was set before you at your birth was completed on your cross and it's because of that death it's because of your resurrection that you have offered to us new life for all of those who believe and put faith in your name and so, Lord God, we pray that as people who have believed upon your name, we might continue to live worthy of the calling that we've been called to. And for those who are under the sound of my voice that have never experienced a relationship with you by faith, that they might come to know you in the remission of their sins, that they might come to know you by faith, that they might put their trust, their whole trust in you the God of the universe the savior of our souls and so Lord we thank you we thank you that you sent your son we thank you that he lived a perfect life on our behalf and died a perfect death in our place so that we might experience this life eternal what more can we say than thank you thank you thank you and we pray that in the name of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Hello, this is Dr. Eric Mason, founder of Pastor of Epiphany Fellowship. Thank you for tuning in today. Hopefully the word of God was a blessing to you. Also, if you want to help us build the kingdom from Philly and beyond, particularly in inner cities, partner with us today. And if you don't know Jesus as Savior, based on his death, burial, and resurrection, place your confidence in him and go from spiritual death to spiritual life. Tune in next time so we can see you go from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. God bless you. Take care. We love you. We love you.